0: Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week, it's not a panelist episode; it's a guest episode again. And we have on the but I'm going to start with a panel. So we have on the panel today, Alan Weimar. Hello, how's it going? Uh, it's going good, Alan. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I guess it was so to our listeners. Um, and here I'm Sasha Wolf, and we have a special guest this week, like special in two ways, to be honest. Mika Kalathia, and Mika is actually somebody who used to be a panelist on the show. So before my time, to be honest. So it's nice to meet you, like like a remembrance from the past. But why don't you still still tell people like why you're on the show and why we why we are excited to have you?
1: Hey everyone, uh, yeah, my name is Mika. I am on the show because so I actually wrote a blog post about composing Ecto queries, and I really am a fan of making your code nice and succinct, and making sure that you can reuse your code as much as possible, so you have to write less of it. Uh, and that's what I'm here today to talk about.
2: Nice. and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want. right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: And I already admitted before we started the recording that I got swamped at work and didn't have time to read the the blog post before, but Alan did. So I guess Alan is like the nice informed person and I'm the naive one which asks all the dumb questions. So, uh, yeah, the,
3: the, the article is pretty good. Like you had some pretty interesting ideas. As we talked before the show, I don't know if I agree putting all the stuff into the module folder, the module, sorry, the module itself, but either either case, like it was still like, let's remove, like basically I got from the gist, like let's remove querying from the context, like the public context uh, module, and then um, let's try to compose them as much as possible, right? And I think that's, that's pretty interesting. It's kind of, it's almost like a mini DSL you have going on with the way you did all the functions, which I thought was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what the end goal is, is to really build yourself a DSL that you can use in in your library to asset, well, really to create yourself a library. So once you have a library that has a DSL for you, you just have to stop remaking functions, then dropping into like basically pure Ecto and hitting the Ecto query API, and you can instead just call your own functions and compose them together. So as long as you built yourself a composable enough library you can essentially stay out of actually writing any ecto query functions at all and just call your library over and over again, composing the functions that you've already created. So you can reuse what you've done in previous work and just continue to reuse that forever, really.
3: Yeah, that could work for like simple cases, but once you start having like window functions and all kinds of like specialized queries, then I, how would you handle something like that? Though, I mean, would you just make a separate function within your the the struct module, or how would you handle something like that?
1: Yeah, something like that, I would handle by exactly as you said, just making a query function again inside of the schema. So you could, as you were saying, I know you mentioned that you didn't really like how the schema was holding all the queries. I think it's really just so about splitting that responsibility between context and schema and or really just context and the query spot that you're going to store all the queries. So you're not calling your queries inside your context. That could be any file. But yeah, again, I would just store that excess code or that unique case query inside of that schema. And that way you can kind of isolated off again as its own query and you can call it as needed so you might not ever call it again but it's isolated you can kind of that's where it lives and you know where to find it now because you can go and you can look for queries related to the user for example and you'll just find that user window function in there. So you know where to go to find your queries as well. It not only creates a reusable pattern, it creates an easy way to find what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's something I said before we actually did the recording is the nice thing about Elixir and the nice thing about how queries work, all of these are pure functions, right? So if at some point you realize, okay, for example, the user module gets too big, because there's a lot of validation maybe also going on in change sets and there are multiple ways we want to compose queries, you could easily move that into a module of its own, where you could say, okay, now I'm going to create a user queries model or even multiple queries model if you have distinct use cases where you might want to use those. So nothing is stopping you from from splitting that up into multiple distinct parts and then composing them back together, which is like a very, very nice quality of pure functions, which, which we have here. So I mean, why not start with why not start with the schema module and keep it simple? Then at least you know where to go at first, and move it later out later when it gets complex.
3: Yeah, it's often so this is only for querying, right? Sorry, I was just thinking about this, this is only for querying, right?
1: Yeah, it's really only for querying. You can do it for update or delete. Like if you're using an update all function, uh, you could also do it for deletes using like delete all. Or so you can use it for really any of the query functions that you can pass in just a raw query. You obviously, inserts not going to work, but. So why is it that
3: you think that we should remove the queries from the context portion? I mean, when you generate like with a scaffold, all this stuff, you get that original style. Uh, What's the why is it you think that it should not
1: be in there? I'd say that when you get to a really large project, it makes it very difficult to work with the context when there's a lot of queries in them. It often means that you're either having to break apart the context too early because there's just tons of query code in there, or the context just gets out of control and you have like a five or 600 line context. Whereas if you can move those queries into another place, then it gives you a way of organizing them that's more manageable in a larger project. Uh, So like the project I work on for work has tons of schemas. We probably have over a hundred schemas and having a hundred schemas comes with having multiple contexts. So we probably have around 20 contexts for those hundred schemas, but each of those contexts is really lightweight and has under a hundred files, sorry. It's all the early morning telemarketers, that's what it is. (laughs) I just get random spam calls in the morning from telemarketers, it's great. (laughs) Way to be stopped. I yeah, I'm kind out. of lost there too. Uh, 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 so why, why, why not
0: in context? Why not? Why not in context? Why why move it? Yeah, into a different you left phase? off
3: that you have a very large project and it makes ah, it right over uh, 100 schemas things. So
1: maybe,
0: maybe repeat that sentence and then we can edit it out. And
1: then yeah, so we basically have over 100 schemas at work, and with a lot of schemas come a lot of context as well. And so having we have around 20 contexts, and I can't imagine what it would look like if we had actually put the queries in those contexts as well. There's tons of customers some queries that go on. And a lot of the queries are actually just like fragments under the hood. So they're just calling out to a fragment. And if you had that in the context directly, we'd probably have double, if not more, contexts than we do already. And we'd also lose the ability to reuse the functions very easily, or else the reusability would just look a bit weird because you're calling other context modules from within a context and you might get cyclical calls to your context, essentially. essentially.
0: Yes, it also, I feel like it, it cleans up the context because, I mean, otherwise you kind of operate on different layers of abstraction there. We had that maybe not as big as like your one of our 100 schemas, but still I I used to work on a project which was relatively big. And then when I feel like contexts are usually the place where you would put some kind of business logic, right, which goes beyond validating on a basic level, which should arguably probably happen either in the exchange set or even before in the controller. But like the business logic, like the high level business logic, that's that's from my point of view, that's where you put that is the context and then you're not really that interested into the gritty of like okay how do i query this particular schema now i would just like to say okay for this particular piece of my business logic i'm interested in users which compose uh, which fulfill these and those criteria. for example right what we did there was like similar to your approach but slightly different that we actually had like a queries module uh, on a case-by-case basis uh, where we said okay we have particular queries we want to do and those get composed in a module and the functions we wrote there were like a little bit different. that we didn't have like by code or by first name or by last name it was more you could give it like a keyword list of different arguments. And then that basically did an enum reduce over that and composed it into one big query, uh, which worked nicely, to be honest. Um, but it's the idea is the same. The idea is exactly the same. The API is slightly different.
1: So that actually Sorry reminds me of uh, EctoShorts. So it sounds very similar to what I did with EctoShorts, which is a library I also introduced at the very bottom of the blog post. And so what that is, is it's just it's basically a library that does exactly what you're saying. I'll give you a few seconds to look it up, and then you can see, but basically what it does is it allows you to pass that keyword list and also a query object, and then it'll filter based off of any relational field or any field, natural field of that schema, and it actually takes it one step further. You can go down one level of nesting for relational fields as well, and so you can query off of relations, and you can do all sorts of filters with that as well. Uh, So you get like, the I like filters and the greater than, less than, you get all of that, and it I basically formed it into a parameter, a parameterized API where you can essentially just give a map with a bunch of keys and it'll turn that into a query for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite similar to what
1: we did. Like, I mean,
0: the, the, the way we did the composing there was more focused, right? I mean, what you can do if it's your own code, where we said, okay, we want to focus this particular field always with like an I like or this field always with like an equals, right? Yep. That was like a like a just decision we made there on that API level. But a part of that, yeah, it was exactly like that you could say, okay, please give me the user and then which has these properties or this other schema. I don't think it was always a user. It's too long ago. I can't tell you specifics. <laughs> but um yeah, it 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 worked out really nicely in like a use case and at the end of the day was a good example of also if you drill down into how it works relatively straightforward right like an, an enum reduce and then a bunch of private function clauses which do pattern matching and your quotes just done like no, nothing more
1: yeah that's really no, all it no is magic. for the ecto shorts library as well so it sounds like it they're very similar in that way hey, maybe that's just like the beauty of functional programming languages is that you can really just reduce anything you can just make whatever you want out of almost a singular reduce most times or maybe two it's it's pretty impressive i'm uh, yeah. i'm in the middle of a composable generator library right now and that is also just like everything is a reduce it's quite it's quite fascinating to see yeah
0: also i do remember that i think it was one of the first cases where a reduce really felt natural you know what i mean like sometimes you, you you can solve problems with reduce and it feels a bit awkward just in terms of like thinking about it, but like here you say okay, I want to I want to get out this query at the end of the day and I have this list of arguments, so it feels very natural to use reduce there. Okay, yeah, I was pretty happy fortunate it turned out in the end, so I can certainly see why why, why you ended up with extra short and a
1: similar pattern. <laughs> it just lends itself nicely to it. It really does. It's it's a really nice pattern, especially once you start moving into like Absinthe or GraphQL or even your uh, controllers. Just be, having the ability to open up a parameter and have it automatically just work is amazing. So for example, if you have your libraries all connected with Shorts and your GraphQL API just going straight through that, you can essentially just add a parameter to the argument like say you need a name filter, you just add the argument for name, and because the parameters are all going through Ecto shorts, everything is all hooked up, and that's all you needed to do. And now you have the ability to query by name. So it's it's it, because you have that ability to query by any natural field, and you can just hook it up to things and allow it to just work. And creating CRUD APIs is almost simple at that point because you're just hooking them up straight to a single function call.
3: What is this? Sorry, I'm looking at the configuration for Ecto Shorts, And of course, you got to configure a repo. And it's cool that you can also configure a replica. But the one thing I didn't quite get is the error module. Like, what is this exactly? Cause, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite get it.
1: So the reason I allowed you to configure an error module is to customize errors. So I'm, I'm a big fan of creating error systems in your framework and allowing, allowing your system to essentially have errors that you expect. And so one of the ways that we do that is by having a specific struct uh, that is responsible for an error. And so I actually open sourced this as well. Uh, there's a library that I have called error message. And what it is, is it, it's just literally a wrapper for errors and that's all it does. But by wrapping errors, it allows you to have predictable errors in your system. And so you can have predictable responses and pattern match off like a code, for example. And so instead of trying to pattern match on a string, which is super frail, like someone can just come along and change that string because, oh, I didn't understand the message. I just went and typed and changed it. And who knows what resulting code broke. But if you have a consistent code, then you can keep the response matching without it being frail, without having that fragility. Uh, And so that's why I'm a really big fan of error messaging systems and having like an error system in place in your overall project, because that allows you to overall and anywhere in your project, just repeatedly match and pull out to these errors and try and find a specific one. Like, for example, if you had like the error message uh, library exports functions for all of the HTTP errors. And so if you can fit your error into that, like a not found error, then anywhere in your app, you can just kind of match for a code not found. You don't have to care about the error message or what it even looks like. You just look for the code not found. And that is not going to change no matter what message. May change, and so oh yeah. So to go back to why that's in Ecto Shorts is Ecto Shorts allows you to override that, and so you can make the errors that come out of Ecto Shorts familiar to your own system, and then it looks and feels like the errors that come out of Ecto Shorts are part of your system, and that can be useful because a lot of times your change that or sorry your middleware for formatting will take into account your error system, and it'll know how to format the errors that come out of your system. So that way, when I whatever you're returning, whatever errors come out they're automatically formatted and the same can be applied to anything that comes out of EctoShorts. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me.
0: It's also like a fierce, the notion is related to some wisdom in the Elixir community around not overusing the error tuple uh, pattern, right? Like if you actually want to get some more information passed down, then there's, I've heard a lot of people suggest to reach for structs rather and say, okay, package it up in, in structs which are self-explanatory and which give the same level of, of context to your calling APIs instead of having these deeply nested tuples you sometimes see. And I've been guilty of to do myself, to be honest.
3: <laughs> but that would be like, so if you have an error tuple, then the second argument would, or the second value would definitely be the error struct, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It would still have an error tuple, but the second value would, would be a struct. And I said, I, I've been guilty myself of like having the second, second argument being a tuple then again, and then having some some values in the head of that. And it, it just becomes easier to deal with if you have structs there because then you can for example just match on the struct name if it's a specific error message or it can struct match match on a particular field of a struct name you don't have to know the structure and the number of fields uh, as much as if you would have a nested second
1: level tuple which then you would have to match on explicitly right I'd say definitely and it doesn't even have to be a struct like honestly you could just use a map or a keyword list like totally. just anything that allows you to Store some fields in it and then pattern match. Actually, maybe I wouldn't use a keyword list just simply because you have to match all the fields of a keyword list. Mm -hmm. So you probably would not want to do that. And maps are probably the best bet. Maps are structs. I would, I would probably use those. I I find that map structs are nice in some sense because then you can add protocols to them. So you can add like a protocol for the inspect protocol or uh, the enum one. And that allows you to pass it to like things like the JSON. Uh, field from Phoenix, so you can use the Phoenix JSON function to render as long as the enum protocol is implemented. So stuff like that is really nice with structs, where you can just pass them straight to other libraries and have them work. Yeah, and then if you if you even go down
0: another level of, of where you say, okay, I don't know if this, for example, implements uh, the maybe error was it is a def def error then what you do def exception I don't remember if you do that you could even then go ahead and say okay on my context level if it bubbles up to that I'm going to raise it if a function has a bang then I could implement a handler for that on my phoenix layer and return a specific error message all these are things you can reach for if you have
1: structs and not as easily if you if you use anything else, basically. <laughs> totally. So. I think it's really cool that having these like systems in place allow you to just reuse code more. And so similar to like the Ecto, how we were talking about Ecto, and uh, being able to reuse code there, you can reuse code once you have an error system as well because then all your errors are the same. And so you get to reuse any code that handles those errors as well. So I, I like the factor of reusing code. And I think that oftentimes, like we can have a really good library or a really good small set of tools that can be reused in many different ways. And having a little Swiss Army knife can is not a bad thing, um, as long as you don't overcomplicate it. Sometimes, like people can overcomplicate it, and then you're stuck with a Swiss Army knife with like one of those big ones that it's like this thick, like like a, a few inches System thick. System D. <laughs> <laughs> System D is that a good case? That I would say yeah, probably. probably.
0: I don't have a strong opinion on the matter, so please don't flail me. But <laughs> for talks in that direction, no, it's because true. A lot of what you just said is related to the Unix philosophy, right? Of having multiple small tools which are very purpose-driven, and then compose them into
1: something bigger. Yeah, I really like that idea. I actually didn't know that was Unix philosophy, but I like it. I'm I'm all on board with that idea. Yeah, is, so
3: would you, when you create these errors, right? you're actually like transforming every single possible error that you may consider that you may encounter and then like wrapping it to like your own uh, error type. I'm just like, this is kind of a newer idea. I haven't heard of something like this before when I've been looking at code. Yeah. Um, So, you know, like, like, I understand like Postgres have an error, but then you'll probably change it to an Ecto error. But like, I haven't seen anybody do that in their own application. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what it looks like is really just wrapping errors that come out of even like foreign systems, for example. So most of the times you can, because the front end is also relying on these errors, you can wrap the errors to make sure that the air, like the errors coming out of your system are just like homogeneous and all the errors are the same format essentially and so that includes like any errors that you're getting from third parties that you might be calling one of the downsides to that is you might not know every single error type but that can be handled by just using like say an internal server error for ones that you don't know and so that like the ones that you don't know you can kind of just pass into a like a, a catch all basically like the internal server error is really the catch all of the, the error world is it, you, you you know, you can just put whatever you want in there. It's like something is just generically wrong. And so that that way you can define between known errors and unknown errors as well in your system. And so when you're working with third parties, you can often translate the errors that come back from third parties into errors from your system, whereas the other ones that you don't know how to handle, you can just leave as an internal server. And that allows your front end to also plan around that too. So you know the errors, you're thinking about them up front, and that allows you to tell and communicate to the front end, hey, these are the errors I think you might possibly get. You might need to create handlers for this. This can be really useful. Um, I've I've personally used it most recently when developing integrations with Stripe, because Stripe has a ton of different types of errors. Uh, and most of them we can handle, but however, there's just like a few that come up that we're not really sure. They happen at weird times. And that's where the internal server errors have been great because they give us a pre-warning, like something happens and the front end can render it, but they also triggers a message for them saying, hey, we had an internal server error with this. And now we have a log saying this is there's something wrong. This internal error server error shouldn't have happened. Maybe it should happen, and we know the parameters now, and we can add it to the list of known errors. But in general, we shouldn't be having these internal server errors pop up. And if when we do, that's a sign to look into it deeper, essentially. And maybe the ones that we return internally are more okay to be seeing because they're not actual errors, or else they're just like a if they're not actual errors, they're like a error for not being found or something. You call the database and it. Didn't find the record, so you have like not found error popping
3: up. So I'm just trying to think, like as you're sprinkling this code like throughout, like I'm just trying to, think, what does that even look like? Because like if you're, let's just say you're calling repo you know, repo to all everywhere. And let's say there's some error that happens, like, or, or, or maybe a better one would be like, if you do like an insert, right? And it, and it's not actually valid according to the database rules, you're going to get an exception. Yeah. Like, how would I, like, let's say I want to handle that. I want to wrap it with a very custom error because I want to handle that for whatever reason, right? Like, and if I have this in multiple places throughout my app, like, how would I do the wrapping? Like, well, should I just have like a translate function that just takes like, okay, so if it's okay, then just return the original value. If it's not okay, then transform it to this? Like, I'm just trying to understand like, what the code actually looks like if I have this kind of you know, error sprinkled throughout my system.
1: Yeah, a lot of times it just looks like you calling the function of the module and the function, so error message dot not found, and then you pass in the message. Uh, the second parameter is basically just a details parameter, which you can pass anything into, and it'll just put it on the details parameter of that struct. And so that is where you can just basically pass down the error that you already had if there's relevant information on there, so that you can Provide all the details that came with that error but then still have that custom message. And what that allows you to also do is, basically, because you have that custom error message, you can now just render that error, and no matter where the errors are coming from in your system, they're all the same, so you can just pass them right into that JSON rendering function from Phoenix and just have them render out because it's following that error message struct. And so you know and can utilize that error message struct. doesn't matter where the errors are coming from or what they are, but because it's wrapped, they'll just show up to the front end, and that can, basically it means that there's no holes in your error system. And so anything that happens in your in your actual backend, even if it's an error you don't expect, will end up with a real error message to the front end that you can actually use to go back and debug. It can also shoot you in the foot, actually, because uh, if you're doing something like authentication, and you try and put things on the details that are for developers, like, say, the tokens or something, and they come back as errors to the front end, that might not be so good. So you kind of have to watch yourself for sensitive information going to the front end.
0: Yeah, but, but that's basically always the story, right? I mean, that you have to, to look at, okay, where do you put sensitive information? Um, and I mean, from a code organization level, that for um, my experience, I've done similar things, not in the sense of like having this error wrapping, but in the sense of like... Um, Translating errors from like an external source, for example. And that how I usually tackle that is like I have a very well encapsulated high level module where I say, okay, these are the use cases I would like to communicate with this external system, for example. Then this on that module or like modules beneath that takes care of the nitty gritty stuff of communicating, right? And then this takes care of also capturing potential errors, translating basically known errors, so to speak. I mean, there's like this distinction between all the things you expect to go wrong and then the things which unexpectedly go wrong. So it translates its known errors into a different structure and unknown errors also into like more general. Okay, there's some, something happened which I didn't expect to happen, but then at least you don't leak this implementation detail, so to speak, to the rest of your application which doesn't really have to care that this, for example, is an external system you're speaking to, but rather that, okay, I have this this functionality I need for this part of my application, and this module over there provides it, and however, then you have it well encapsulated, and also have a nice place to translate these errors. That's how I usually do it on a code organization level.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. That makes a lot of sense. I think the,
1: the, thing that changes a lot for me is just over time how people use those air systems if you don't have like a, a solid foundation set up then how people build air systems might change over time like some people might choose to do a, a slightly different style in other apps um, i don't know how uh, like so the projects that i i've been working on recently at blitz the we have basically one umbrella app and that one umbrella app has around 40 apps inside of it and so as you can imagine <laughs> there yeah there can be quite a bit of drift in between apps if you don't have a solid foundational layer because there's just like i can't we can't all look at every single pr meaning we can't see if some error systems are just a tiny bit out of place or they're returning the wrong errors and that might not fall too well in when that code if if it's like in a reusable library in one of those umbrella apps and then we start to reuse that in another app and it just completely breaks because the errors aren't the right format that's something we can't really catch because there's just not enough eyes on that pr basically we don't all have time to look at that one pr and so having that error system in place really just removes that chance of happening you just don't have the ability to create errors that won't work with the rest of the system wait did you just mention that you have an
3: umbrella app because we had a big discussion a couple of weeks ago about none of us really have experience with umbrella apps and like it, all that's I know
0: not said, true.
1: I, I have a lot of experience umbrella. We don't have a lot of experience with poncho apps, Adam. Ah, uh, yeah, poncho apps are a bit oh, poncho. Okay, poncho apps are fun. I remember, um, I've only I've done them a few times for mostly for nerves, but I've done them a few times for real projects as well, and it, they've been not as fun to maintain as just a normal umbrella app. I'd say. Yeah, we actually made that decision on, on
0: you had a episode on that and what we discussed. Okay. um Br- to umbrella or not to umbrella? That was also, I think, the title. And talked about like having one like one big app, right? Having umbrella apps, having Poncho apps, having multiple distinct services. That are all the things we talked about. Because I ha- we had to make that decision at my current workplace. Um, as we currently have a more service-oriented architecture, but we don't really have a need on an organizational level. Like a lot of it's just free backend devs, so there's like no distinct separate ownership, so to speak. So we made the decision to move to one big monorepository and also then we had made the decision on actually having one big app, not an umbrella app, but having one big app. Because umbrella app, apps
1: come with their own trade-offs. <laughs> I know a lot of people talk about the trade-offs of umbrella apps. I've, I've actually never really seen too many of the downsides. I've, I've been using umbrella apps since I basically started with Elixir, just because I found that they're a really great way to package a lot of code. And I've, n- I've never had an issue that, like, I know a lot of people talk about the issues, but I've never seen any of them yet. So I'm not sure what's going on there. or if The way that I use umbrella apps lucky just you. falls into a lucky spec spectrum, but I've never had an issue with them. Lucky you. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to, I don't
0: want to reiterate <laughs> on everything yeah. we talked in that episode, but so you can go back and listen to it if you want, one of folks if you don't have yet. But yeah, uh, Umbrella apps, I, I have experience with Umbrella apps and I was going to say this, like uh, it, it has bitten me in a few places, mostly when it comes to configuration. So that's where Umbrella apps can be can be sticky. But like I said, uh, I'm yes. not going to go into all of the
1: details. The config in Umbrella apps, always always a fun time. So, I actually, would like to ask just because I'm curious
0: myself. Uh, so, you're currently working with Blitz, right? right? and that means Blitz is driven by Elixir. Yep, Blitz GG. Okay.
1: Blitz That's GG is all Blitz. all driven by Elixir. We have a few Node backend services, but for the most part, I, everything is in Elixir.
0: And and how is like the the, the 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 stuff you laid out in in your blog post and the stuff we talked about with like this um, for error error messaging is? I guess that most a lot of that is related to to the work you do there at Blitz GG.
1: Yeah, so everything is in use there. Um, i I basically been using these patterns since I started in Elixir. Uh, Ecto Shorts was actually the first library I ever created, and I created it originally by putting all like it was a macro that would put all of the functions onto your schema. So you'd have like user dot create dot find. And uh, Jose actually told me not to do that. He like I posted the library like it was ages ago like this was before 1.0 before elixir 1.0 and he he basically said like don't don't do this like this is not the way and so i refactored everything to take in the schemas instead as a parameter and that's why the the library looks like that now and is not like user.create because originally i just i made it like active record right so i basically i came from ruby and i saw, I loved Active Record, and I was like, "Okay, let me just make this for Elixir." And so I did that, and it was just like, "No, this isn't the right way. This isn't the elixir way." Uh, and so ever since then, I've been using those libraries at basically every project I've ever worked on, and same with the error one, too. The error one was my second library, and again, I've been using that ever since. And so in, at Blitz, we also use both of those. We have tons of schemas, as we mentioned before, and tons of context. And that's how we organize our code. We split the queries into the schemas and the context compose them all together. Uh, most of the time, EctoShorts is related to that. And, yeah, and the all the errors coming out are part of the error messaging system. The error message, should, like, we actually don't have structs at Blitz. We just use maps right now. Uh, but the intent is to move over to that error message library as well, just because it, it's a bit of a drop-in replacement for us because we already follow the same format just without the struct. So all the map matching will still work for us. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Pretty cool to hear.
1: Any any other interesting stories on,
0: on that front where you, where you can say, okay, this is like a... Another challenge, and maybe maybe not in the open source space, but something you learned while working on this big system, because I think a lot of a lot of our listeners are have experience with umbrella projects with like forty different sub apps. so. I feel like there could be some some interesting pieces of knowledge there.
1: Yeah, I think like when you're working on really large apps, the way you code almost changes and like the way you organize your code changes because what I've what I've started to learn is that there's a very big distinction between like library code and internal like business logic code or basically everything else. And that happens even with your own internal libraries too. So the way that you write your internal libraries has to look significantly different than the rest of your code because it has to handle your own developer errors, basically. So it has to raise the proper things so that the developers will actually know what's going on. You're not just going to get random errors that are hidden within the library, basically. Like the worst thing is when you get a stack trace and none of the stack trace is part of your own code or even something that you can really reason about. You just look through libraries and be like I have what's going on here. So that in in effect, when you create libraries internally, the same problem also happens, and you kind of have to manage that and maintain like a high level of really well built up stack traces so that they're not you're not giving your developers just random gibberish errors. Um, other lessons that we've learned are just like I'd say Postgres lessons. Postgres is always the issue. It's usually like the first thing that breaks. <laughs> like Elixir is almost never gonna be the problem on your machine as long as you've designed things following OTP and you're like not blocking your processes, for example. Um, you're, you're really just gonna have a smooth time in Elixir. And the first thing that happens is you're going to start hitting like DB connection errors because something in the database went wrong. And whether that's like, oh, I forgot an index here, or whether it's like, oh, I'm just querying this thing too much. I My query is wrong. It's not optimized. There's like so many problems that can happen in the database and very few that actually happen in, in Elixir. And I think that's like one of the beauty of working in Elixir. One of the things I really like about taking on a large project in Elixir is just the problem is not Elixir. Like when you, when you actually... Are deploying these things or have them well as long-running systems. The problem is not Elixir. It's just it's some other external service connected to Elixir. Like there's a few times where Elixir's been a problem, like uh, message passing, large messages that that can become a problem. Or we've created bottlenecks and needed some pools to solve them. Those are those are like the easy problems almost to solve at this point because it's like we have a set of tools. We know the answer. There's a problem. It's like okay, this process is getting hammered. You use some pools, you split them out. There's like known solutions. The database is the one thing where the solution is just, it's almost different every single time. I don't think there's ever been a situation where the solution is the same. And that's kind of one of the things that I've learned as a big piece of wisdom is just the database. You you just focus on that And if you're scaling, most of the time, the database is always going to be the issue. And you can really rely on Elixir to scale you as long as you've built out your system properly.
0: Yeah, cool. That sounds like a very very valuable lesson. But I also feel like it's probably related to that. I mean, the database takes care of a lot of complex things for us, right? So it's probably not unexpected that, that 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 complexity is going to come back at some point and say, okay, hey, here, now you have to think a bit more about it. I mean, at the end of the day, Postgres takes care of so much, for you you don't have to think about and it pushes you very far so just want to like make a shout out to postgres here
1: <laughs> postgres is honestly <laughs> amazing i'd say like when i first started using postgres i'd always hear people say like oh it doesn't scale well like there's a limit where you can't scale it and i would think that is like completely wrong we actually replaced cassandra in our in our library in our app with Postgres, like a lot of our Cassandra-related things, are now going into Postgres, and it still performs just fine. We ingest like around thirty million rows a day, maybe that's actually nice. quite a bit more than that because that's just the amount like of matches that we're getting every day. But then all the other records, I'm not counting. Uh, so basically, as we input matches, we get around thirty million of those daily. And so we like we use Postgres for everything. We have aggregates run on it. Like everything is built on top of Postgres, and it's very very quick provided that you build the right schemas and you know what you're doing. Uh, we personally had to partner with some DBAs and as consultants. And that honestly was one of the best decisions we made because they have so much knowledge. And it's amazing the amount of things that Postgres can do and the amazing the amount of things that we don't know about that are just not common knowledge. But DBAs are just like, hey, this is just the most common thing you would do like this. Like when you hit this problem, here's the answer. But for us, we just, hit, we just hit this wall and we're like, oh, Postgres isn't scalable. Let's start up Cassandra or like, let's start up this new database that's a bit faster.
3: I think one of the coolest things that people don't know is that there's actually a PubSub built into Postgres, which is really interesting and i actually used that in a project i got brought onto the uh one of the other uh podcasts because of the solutions because i showed it to people it was like super popular video i created about how to actually do it cuz like the issue i had was like my client says he wants this chat system built and he wants to be able to like delete messages but then like when you have a reply to a message we have like a relation right so a message can be like replied to another message and so if you delete the, the root message and then all those replies on there have to also be removed too. Uh, that was part of the requirements. And so like, how do we actually do this? Well, we actually like use PubSub to kind of handle this because like, you know, you can have like a cascade effect where you just keep deleting things that are related. And so every time that a row was deleted, we would just broadcast a message saying you know, this was deleted and then that would actually send up message across the uh, WebSocket to all the connected clients through a WebSocket. And that would just remove the message on their device. So it was really awesome and just worked perfectly.
0: And also, if you're using Commanded in your, lab, uh, in your app locally, you're actually using the PubSub mechanism because Commanded is relying on the PubSub mechanism. For oh, really? I had no idea, that. but it makes sense. I know this because we, in this big umbrella app I mentioned earlier, that we also use Commanded. And then we migrated over to Azure, which was like a sea level decision. Let's just say that. And that was when Azure was like was like five, six years ago. So Azure was very early, I'd say. And actually, the pub sub mechanism on on the managed Postgres in Azure was broken, which we figured out because it's basically what happened: that that that's part of our app. When they booted up, they consumed all the events which were pending until then, but but they didn't consume new events. We were like, well, what's happening? What's going on? Why, why, why are they consuming new events?" And we actually got in touch with like, uh, with with a guy behind Command, I, I don't remember his name right now, and he
1: actually digged into like the managed
0: Postgres on Azure and figured out that that uh, PubSub was broken there. So yeah, that, that was a fun day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's awesome. When your managed SQL providers are just like are broken in a major feature, I wonder how that even happened. That's a really interesting story. <laughs>
0: can't tell you i mean it took a bit of back and forth also with the support until they they also arrived at the conclusion that yes actually this is broken okay we're gonna fix it
1: That's so funny. I, I think Postgres is actually just so amazing and has so many powers that we don't know about. Um, one of the things that like I often use that we use all the time at Blitz, actually, and that allows you to scale is just like partitioning and being able to partition your data. I think not a lot of people I've seen that use Postgres actually use the partitioning feature as well. And oftentimes, like when you're setting up a database, if you plan to have high scale, you really need that partitioning in order to set up uh, anything that scales. And having it set up from the beginning, you kind of also need that because when you don't have it set up from the beginning, well, I, we've personally been there at Blitz and it's led to, like, we've had to go down for hours to be able to rebuild a database or else we're just like re we have another database that we spin up on the side and then have to rebuild our new data into there or create new tables and build them into our own database again. But sometimes there's performance loads so you can't do that. So there's like all sorts of issues that you face that if you don't set things up properly uh, with partitioning the first time. But I've yet I don't think I've ever seen it be used outside of something like Blitz, like a big app in when even in cases where it can be used instead people are just like oh postgres doesn't scale so it's cool that you also have been able to use it and manage as well and have like the pub subsystem is so successful and be able to use that at scale with something like command like that's pretty awesome
0: I, would, I was actually curious i mean you, you know you said you haven't seen partitioning for example used that often but that you feel that not more people should know about it right do you have some some reading you can recommend to do for our listeners and also i mean i, I would talking to that myself, to be honest?
1: (laughs) Um, You know, I actually don't have too many sources for this. So I first learned about partitioning from the DBAs directly. And so most of my knowledge from Postgres has come from like one-on-ones with the database, the DBAs, and basically just asking them like, hey, what does this do? Or what does this do? Or like, how do you do this? Or what happens when you're in this situation? So all of it has just been like firsthand knowledge of just talking to the DBAs when things have gone wrong and basically just figuring out like why did it go wrong and what are the solutions? They have just am- amazing amounts of uh, wealths of knowledge, like 20 years of knowledge. And that's just working in Postgres. And once you've started working on the core of Postgres, it seems like Tons of other skills are unlocked. It's pretty amazing. It sounds pretty, pretty neat, to
0: be honest. But it also sounds like Postgres is kind of the Swiss Army knife with a lot of tools at its
1: disposal. (laughs) Yeah, it's starting to seem like uh, the Unix philosophy there, isn't it? (laughs) Or or rather the opposite of it. Yeah, maybe Maybe. so. It might be a bit too big for the small tools. Maybe it's just like that one mega tool. It's like a god object at this point. (laughs) Yeah, nice.
0: Okay, um, anything else you would like? To to let our listeners know, you'd like to promote anything you would like to ask Ellen, Otherwise, I would probably slowly transition us to pics. Yeah, so no, I one... just want to
3: say thank thank you for giving me more reading to do. Now I have to read about table partitioning because I'm into some scalability recently. So hopefully, this may solve my issues. But I got too many things to read, man. <laughs> like,
1: uh, I it definitely gives me too much know.
3: knowledge to to look up.
1: Well, here's another piece of knowledge for you. So I actually run an Elixir course called Learn Elixir. Where we teach all of these things, as well as how to scale into basically the same levels as Blitz has or higher, and so that's that's what I've been working on recently. I've I've actually been working on the course for about two years now, so it's it's only something I've been public with recently. Like when I was on the panel in the past, I never mentioned it at all because I didn't think it was ready yet. Like I didn't I wasn't confident that we'd have the ability to teach what I wanted to, or wasn't right uh but we've had tons of people come through the course now and we've seen really good results people are loving it they're learning they're getting they're getting jobs out of it just due to the fact that their elixir's knowledge after the course has been really good like they know the core fundamentals well enough that you can basically be successful in any type of job that you have because you just know the core and i think that's one of the really cool things about otp that's not talked about very much is once you know the core fundamental underlying principles how do schedulers work how do processes work you can really work in any project and be successful.
0: I feel like that could also be valuable to a lot of people out there because recently Alan and me did an episode on like OTP in depth and realized that there's not a lot of good resources out where out there to learn these, these pieces of wisdom. Like, okay, how do you really properly build out an OTP system? And what are some things you maybe don't want to,